listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. All right, so we're in Colossians 3 and moving forward with Colossians 3. Got a very unique message. Uh, the title of the message this morning, Does God Play Favorites? And uh, we're going to be in verses 9 through 12 today. Colossians 3, Does God Play Favorites? Unique topic, but uh, very important topic. And it's going to be a different kind of message, but um, I feel profoundly there's something that God really wants to speak into our hearts today. Let's look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> and we'll finish at verse 12. Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When I was in middle school a long time ago, yeah, don't, you shouldn't laugh when I say that. When I was in middle school, I, uh, my, one of my favorite classes, of course, was PE. And every afternoon, we'd go to the gym, dress out, and we'd play a sport. Dodgeball, volleyball, flag football, kickball, basketball, whatever. We'd play a sport. And our, our PE teacher at the time, his way of assembling teams, would he would just have the kids pick the teams, which I don't feel like is the best way to do it. But he would have the, the kids pick the teams. And he would choose two of the more athletic kids, two of the jocks, to uh, take turns picking their teams. And, of course, you know how it goes. I mean, as teams are being picked and you're going down the pecking order, kids start to get a little afraid. They get nervous because nobody wants to be the last one chosen. I was always kind of lucky because I was tall, I was athletic, I played sports, and so I was usually chosen very early, and sometimes even the captain of the team. But there was one kid in our class, I'm going to call him Jimmy, who was not so lucky. He was small, he was short, weak, scrawny, uncoordinated, and just, you know, sports just wasn't his thing. I'm sure there were other gifts that he had, but sports athletics wasn't something he was good at. And so he was usually always uh, the last one remaining. And usually when you got to the end, you know, there'd be like this discussion between the captains, you know, oh, you guys can have Jimmy. And then the other guy would say, uh, I mean, we had Jimmy last, last time. What, you guys take Jimmy. No, Jimmy can't even swing a bat. You know, you guys take him. And then, you know, sometimes the, the class would uh, break out into laughter. Sometimes the coach would laugh. And then sometimes even Jimmy would laugh just to try to pretend like it didn't really matter to him. Although you could tell that it did. You know, it hurt him. In this passage we just looked at, Paul uses an interesting phrase. He tells the Colossian Christians that they are among God's chosen people. You are God's chosen people. I want to explore with you today, and maybe even a little bit next week, what that means. To be God's chosen people, does that imply that there are other people that are not chosen of God? Does God, in other words, play favorites? Does God pick and choose 
who he's going to save and who he's not going to save, much like gym teachers have captains pick their kickball teams. There are many people, many theologians and many pastors throughout history, believe it or not, who would say that actually this is very much like the way God operates. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty actually appalling and shocking to me just how many people think this way. I have, in fact, good friends. And some of you, you probably have friends, whether you know it or not, who actually believe this is the way God operates. That they would say before the foundation of the world, before people are born, God predetermines who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. Who's going to be an object of his mercy and who's going to be an object of his wrath. And God decides it and sets it in stone before people are born and there's nothing they can do to change it and yet God creates them that way anyway. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating, I want to show you this straight from the horse's mouth. I want to show you a couple quotes today from uh, a man named John Calvin. How many of you have heard of John Calvin? Most of you, I'm sure, have. He lived a few hundred years ago. Man of God, Christian, and he wrote a lot of good things. But he had also some pretty wonky ideas about God. And this is one of them. Now, he's, he's the one that's mostly associated with this view. He's not the one that originated it. That would be a guy named Augustine back in the 5th century. But Calvin said it more clearly. So I want to just show you real quick a couple quotes from John Calvin. And I'm going to share the quote. I'll probably put it in my own words for you as well. But he said, he, here's what he wrote in his uh, Institutes. He says, we call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each and every person. He says, for all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others foreordained. So he's saying before people are ever born, God made a deal with himself what everybody's eternal fate was going to be. Some people are going to find eternal salvation. Some people are going to find eternal damnation. And it's set in stone. It's an eternal plan. Here's the second quote I wanted to show you. Later on, he says this. God wants to establish by his eternal and unchangeable plan those who he long before determined once for all to receive unto salvation and those whom, on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. So in other words, before anybody's born, the outcome is fixed. The outcome is decided. This plan is unchangeable. Some people are going to experience eternal bliss. Some people are going to experience eternal pain and torment. So there you have it. It is a bit like gym class, according to John Calvin and those who follow him. Except what's being decided here is not which kickball team you're going to play on. What's being decided here is your eternal fate. And who's going to experience eternal bliss? And who's going to experience eternal torment? Now, it's important you understand, Calvin is not just coming up with this out of thin air. He believes he's basing this on the Bible. And there are verses and there are passages in the Bible that if you look at them a certain way, it seems like, yeah, this is indeed 
how it operates. Maybe this is exactly the way God chooses and picks people before they're ever born. There are verses that seem to suggest that if you look at them a certain way. What I want to do this morning is we're going to look at the most important passage that is appealed to most often. I believe this passage that we're going to look at is the most misunderstood, misinterpreted passage in the entire Bible. And it has probably caused more fear in more people's hearts than any other passage in the Bible. And I'm talking about Romans 9. So if you have Romans 9, I want you to have your Bible, your Bible app open to Romans 9 this morning. I want you to just have that open. And uh, we're going to look at a few bits and pieces here of uh, Romans 9. And just before we look at it, I want to give you a little background here. What Paul's dealing with, the question he's dealing with is this. If God has sent the Messiah, if God has sent Jesus, then how is it that the Jews, considered to be God's chosen people, how is it that most of them are not receiving Jesus? Most of them are not submitting to Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. If the Jews are God's chosen people, then how is it that when the Messiah comes, they're rejecting him, most of them? That's the question Paul's dealing with here in this section of Romans. So I want to show you just a couple spots here in Romans 9. Look at verse 18 here. Therefore, God has mercy on those, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So eeny, meeny, miny, mo. God just does it. Look at verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. The word right there in the Greek, it refers to the type of object that you would put waste in, that you would put garbage in, like a waste paper basket. So God has fashioned some people for honorable use. He's made other people for the garbage can is the way that people might look at this. And then again in verse 22. Listen carefully right here. What if God although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. All right. Now look up here. I'm going to show off my sculpting skills. Our children's pastor, Heather Bajeron, she always comes through for me. I asked her if she had some Play-Doh, and she said, yes, I have some Play-Doh. So I didn't have to go to the store and buy it. So watch this. Here's how many people will look at a passage like this. So here's a guy. You know, it's a lump of clay, because Paul uses the lump of clay analogy. He's talking about a potter and clay. So here's a, 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 a lump of clay, and it's a person that God's going to shape. And, and here's how many people look at these passages in Romans 9. They say, okay, God shapes this lump of clay. He makes this person. And this guy is specifically being made to be an object of wrath. That's the whole reason God's making this person is this is going to be a person who he's going to pour his wrath on for all of eternity. And that's what God's deciding even before he's making this person. They're going to be an object of his wrath. Um, 
Calvin and Augustine, they would refer to this type of person as a reprobate. So this is a person who's going to hear the gospel, but they're not going to receive it. They're going to reject it. Why? Because God made them that way. He made them not to reject it. He made them to bear his wrath for all of eternity, an object of wrath. And, and what's interesting is how, what, what do they do with this part of the passage where Paul talks about how God bears with great patience his object of wrath? I mean, why does he need patience? If that person's just being the way God made them to be, why does he need patience? We'll just let that one go. Then God takes another lump of clay. But this one is going to be an object of his mercy. So this is a person who is going to uh, hear the gospel and they're going to listen and they're going to respond to it and they're going to receive it. Why? Because God made them to receive it. He created them to be an object of mercy. So there you go. You have two people, two individuals. One is an object of his wrath. The other one is an object of his mercy. And both of them are exactly the way God created them to be. Which brings up an interesting question. Well, why doesn't God just create everybody to be an object of his mercy? If he's determining everything before people are born, why doesn't he make everybody an object of mercy? And Calvin, as well as the many who follow him, would say something like this. The reason why God creates people to be an object of his wrath is so that it would show off how merciful he is to the objects of mercy so that they would give him more glory for it. So in other words, God creates this object of wrath and he's so angry with this object of wrath. He's so furious. Again, why is he furious? They're just being the way he made them to be. But who knows? But he's so furious, he's going to pour out his wrath on this one. So he just goes, boom. Oops, sorry about that. So he smushes the object of wrath, punishes the object of wrath for all of eternity, and then he looks at the object of mercy and says, now aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? You know, glorify me. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I just as easily could have done that to you. So aren't you glad I showed you mercy? And this little guy says, oh, thank you, thank you. Now, when you look at it like that, it, you could see that, ugh, something's off here, you know. But this is how many people interpret Romans 9. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Not only with Romans 9, but there are other sections of the Bible that I can see how people can look at those verses and passages. I can see why they would view them that way. I can see how it's possible to interpret them that way. The question is, is this view correct or not? And let me say this in passing. The people who hold this view are Christians. I'm not doubting salvation at all. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe they're mistaken about this. And I believe it's very unfortunate. But I can see how people can come to this view. What I can't see, what I can't understand, is how anybody can have this view and see God in this way and be able to say with honesty, wow, God, you are altogether beautiful. This is altogether lovely, altogether just, altogether good. The type of God who specifically creates people for eternal destruction, seals their fate before they're born, and still makes them anyway, even though there's nothing they can do to change their destiny. 
here's the thing. You, you, may, you may, out of fear, say, oh, God, you are altogether beautiful, altogether lovely, altogether just, and still have this view. You might, you might say that, but unless you're a sociopath, if you're a morally healthy person, I can't see how you can have this picture of God and genuinely mean it when you say, wow, this is perfectly loving, perfectly beautiful, perfectly just. What if, what if the one who's being smushed here, what if the one who's being eternally punished is your precious little newborn baby? Let's make it personal this morning. And God brings this beautiful baby into the world. And the whole reason God brings the baby into the world is so that he could eternally crush it. And that this baby will live in eternal torment. And God decides it before the baby's born. There's nothing the baby can ever do to change it. And God creates it anyway. And, and, and what Calvin says is the whole reason God does that is so that you, who hopefully you're an object of mercy, would just really appreciate that, oh, God, you did it to my baby. Thank you that you didn't do it to me. Lord, this is glorious, altogether wonderful. You're so merciful that you, did it to, that, that you gave me mercy. Now, just to save your own skin, you might say that, because if you don't say it, then maybe that means you're an object of wrath. But let's be honest. You don't see that as beautiful. You don't see that as altogether lovely and altogether good and altogether just. Let's get real this morning. You know what it is? It's evil. Come on. It's evil. And let me give you a good rule of thumb. Anytime you're reading a passage of the Bible and you come upon an interpretation, you come up with a way of viewing the passage that leaves you with an evil picture of God or a picture of God that is not as beautiful as the one we get from Jesus hanging on the cross. That should be an indicator to you that maybe my interpretation is wrong. And while still upholding the authority of Scripture, I need to keep searching. I need to keep investigating. I need to keep wrestling. Amen? So what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I want to give you a different look at Romans 9. I want to show you a healthier, better interpretation of Romans 9, and I'm going to build it around four points real quickly. And then I've got a, a word for you at the end. The first thing is this. Calvin's interpretation of Romans 9 gives us a picture of God that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. Now, this is the one thing that I hope you always take from my preaching. If you can only ever remember one thing I ever tell you, this would be it. God looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look no further than Jesus hanging on the cross. That's the perfect revelation of God's character. Jesus said it explicitly in your Bible, in the Gospel of John. Anybody who's seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who knows me knows the Father. In Colossians, the book we're studying right now, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory. When God shines, it looks like Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's very essence, God's very being. In other words, God, all the way to the core of God's being, looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And so the cross reveals to us a God of love. That's explicitly what John says 1 John chapter 4, verses 8, and again in verse 16. God is love. Listen very carefully. 
God is love. Love is not something God does. He is love. In fact, everything God does flows out of His loving nature, even His judgment. When God brings judgment, He always brings judgment with a loving, redemptive, hopeful heart. So God is love. He can't help but be loving. There's nothing in God that is not congruent with love. And then John tells us this. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. So also we should give our lives for one another. So God in his very essence is Calvary-like love. God in his very nature is self-sacrificial love. That is his eternal nature. And it would contradict God to ever act in ways that are contrary to self-sacrificial love. If there were ever a single person in the history of humankind that God did not act in self-sacrificial love towards, it would contradict God's very nature. So if you want to know what God's like, this is where we start. And this is where we end. It's Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And you see, this picture of God is totally, totally the opposite of the idea of God in heaven just playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo, unilaterally picking and choosing who he's going to save before people are born. Because Scripture makes it very clear, folks, Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He died for the sins of what? The whole world. Second Peter says God's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't fashion people for eternal destruction before they're born. He doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. So Jesus reveals that God does not play favorites. God does not show partiality. Instead, God loves all. God chooses all. God pours himself out for all. God gives his life on the cross for all. God says, whosoever is hungry, come eat. Whosoever is thirsty, come drink. In Jesus, we see that God loves every person as if they were the only person. So maybe you're in this room or maybe you're listening or watching this message in some way and you feel a little bit like Jimmy, who I described earlier. And you've been passed over your whole life. You've been overlooked your whole life. You never get chosen for anything, for prom, for sports, for jobs. You get overlooked all the time. And you've you've imbibed that. And you feel like, that's who I am. I'm just somebody who's always overlooked. And what you got to know is that God does not overlook you. God does not pass over you. God, out of his love, dies for you. And you got to hear God saying to you this morning, I choose you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is like. I don't care what horrific decisions you've made. I don't care what blasphemies you've uttered. If you will just simply accept my love, then you're going to be embraced by my love and you will be counted among my chosen people. Praise God. Amen. Now, he won't coerce you into his kingdom because that wouldn't be loving. God invites, he welcomes, he pleads, he warns, he, he beckons. God will not force you. Love does not coerce, love does not force. Love always gives the choice. And you have a choice. And you can, if you desire to, choose to reject God. And when you choose to reject God, that's the path to destruction. And and destruction of all kinds. There's destruction this side of eternity that you will experience. But there's also destruction on the next side of eternity. So God gives us a choice. But you got to know as far as God's concerned, God chooses all. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. It's always important 
when you look at a passage of the Bible, that you always start with this question. What's the topic? What's the subject matter here? What question is this passage trying to answer? And we've got to be careful not to force a passage to try to answer questions that it's not trying to answer. And in verse 6, Paul gives us the topic. Let's look at Romans 9, verse 6 on the screen. We see it right here very clearly. It is not as though God's word had failed, God's promise had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Keep that on the screen for just a moment. So here's the question Paul's rest dealing with here. Has God broken his promise to Israel? Has God's word, has God's promise to Israel failed? Now, most of the Jews living during Paul's day believed that they were God's chosen people simply because of their nationality and because they possessed the law. That that's what made them God's chosen people. And so here Paul comes along and Paul's preaching this new gospel. And he's saying that actually anybody who has faith in Jesus is God's chosen people. Anybody who has faith in Jesus is God's chosen people. To which the Jews would respond when they hear this. They're going to say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. If what you're saying is true, then that means God's lied to us when he said that we're his chosen people because of our nationality and because we have the law. If what you're saying is true, then God has broken his promise to Israel. And that's when Paul responds and says, no, 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 you don't understand. Actually, it's never been, it's never been about nationality. And it's never been about having the law. It's always been about faith. The true descendants of Abraham are not his physical descendants. The true descendants of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. I mean, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. Paul in Galatians, all over the place. This is what Paul's trying to drive into people's minds. That's why he says here, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are physical descendants are the true Israel because the true Israel consists of all of those who simply have faith. And so the point of this passage is not which individuals are going to be saved and which are going to be condemned. The point of the passage is what kind of people does God choose as his chosen people? And the answer that Paul gives is all who believe, all who have faith has nothing to do with your nationality or your works of the law. Amen? Which leads to the third point. When you're studying a passage, always look for a place where the author might have summarized his point and summarized his argument. And if your view of the passage disagrees with the author's own summary, then that should tell you your interpretation is wrong. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 9. He gives us a summary. It starts in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Watch this very closely. He says, uh, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've obtained it, a righteousness that is by what? Faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, they have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So notice this. Paul summarizes his whole point. If Calvin was right, 
then we would expect Paul to say something like this. What shall we say? Here's what we say. God hardens whoever he wants to harden. He has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. And that's it. And people who believe in Jesus Christ, it's because God chose them to believe before they were born. And people who reject Jesus Christ, it's because God chose to make them that way before they were ever born. Period. But Paul doesn't say anything like that in this passage. When he summarizes his argument, here's what he's saying. He's actually appealing to the free decisions that people are making. So he says, here you have these Gentiles who don't have, quote unquote, the right nationality and don't even have the law. But they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're going to find themselves on the inside and they're going to become fashioned into God's chosen people. Whereas here you have many of the Jews, not all of them, of course, but many of them, who even though they, quote unquote, have the right nationality and they have the law and all of that, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're going to find themselves on the outside of this thing. Okay, but it's not the case that God is hardening them so that they won't believe. It's the exact opposite. They are freely choosing not to believe in Jesus. And God responds by hardening them. But God's not up in heaven unilaterally picking and choosing who he's going to harden and who he's going to have mercy on them. What he's doing is he's responding to the free decisions of human beings. And all who choose to have faith, they're going to receive God's mercy and they're going to be fashioned as part of God's chosen people all of those who decide to reject Jesus and put their trust in their nationality or their works of the law, instead, they're the ones who are going to be hardened. But even then, the God of unfathomable love is still going to hope. He's still hoping that even as he hardens them, it's going to cause them to turn and come back to it. And that leads to the fourth and final point, a very important point, and it's this. Calvin totally misunderstands the point of the potter clay analogy. You know, Paul talks about the potter shaping clay. All right. And Paul's not coming up with this on his own. He's actually working with a prophecy that had been given about 600 years earlier by a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one who came up with or at least inspired by God, came up with this potter clay analogy all the way back in Jeremiah 18. So this is what Paul's referring to. Let's look at this passage, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 3. Jeremiah writes, so I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, Israel. So this analogy, it's not about the potter's control of the clay, making it do what he wants it to do. It's actually the opposite. It's about the potter's flexibility and his willingness to change his plans in response to what the clay does and how the, whether or not the clay is going to cooperate. So it's all about the potter's flexibility. And you see that in the next part of the passage. Look at verse 7. He says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent 
and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Verse 9. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So the whole point is not about God's unilateral control of the clay. It's the exact opposite. It's about God's merciful flexibility. In other words, your fate is not sealed before you're born. Look at what God's telling them. He's telling them, listen, just because I promise you a blessing's coming, that doesn't mean it's got to come. Because if you change, then I'm going to change. On the other hand, just because I warn you that judgment's coming doesn't mean that it has to come. Because if you change, then I'm going to change. The point is about God's mercy, God's flexibility, responding to whether or not the clay is going to cooperate with him. So here's God announcing, my plan is to save everyone who has faith. And over here you have the Gentiles. They accept that plan. And they say yes to Jesus. Therefore, God responds to that choice by having mercy, and now he's going to fashion them into people who are fit for his kingdom. But on the other hand, when God announces, my plan is to save all who have faith, you have many of the Jews in Paul's day rejecting, choosing to reject Jesus and trust in their own nationality and their own works of the law instead. And so God responds by saying, well, now I have to fashion you in a way that's appropriate to your choice. And I have to fashion you for judgment. But even as he does that, he does it with a redemptive heart, hoping that it will turn them around so that he can graft them back in again. So folks, when we look at Romans 9, it doesn't give us a horrific picture of God as if God seals your fate before you're born and he creates people for eternal destruction and punishes them for being the way that he made them. Rather, when we look at Romans 9, we see a God who wisely responds to people's choices, all the while hoping that all people will turn to him. Because God wants all to be part of his chosen people. But that depends on the choices we make. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.